Uh, this morning we'll be reading uh, from Luke's Gospel the uh, account of, of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, uh, followed by a very different passage uh, when Jesus weeps over the city that he has just um, entered. Uh, let's, um, let's turn our attention to God's Word, Luke uh, chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, uh, going up to Jerusalem. When he draw, drew near to Bethphage and Bethany uh, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, went and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it uh, to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down uh, the Mount of of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear uh, you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they shall not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of God. We ask, Lord, that you would... um, Enable us to see and to feel the weight of this passage. And Holy Spirit, that you would address each one of us for the glory of God and for our own peace and well-being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is such a sharp distance in the teaching leading up uh, to this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. People responded to Jesus in so many different ways. And I'm going to briefly sketch three vignettes to help us get a sense for how it is that people responded to Jesus differently. 
At the beginning of the chapter, uh, Jesus would enter into the house of Zacchaeus. In fact, he would summon him down from a tree and say, I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus was overjoyed. He's coming to have dinner with me. Knowing himself to be a rancid sinner. Others who were of a self-righteous tilt uh, scoffed at this and scorned it and were in fact resentful that he invites himself, this Jesus invites himself into the house of the sinner. Parable of the minas, a, 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 a coin of, of some value in that era. Um, this parable describes the enemies of God um, who did not want anything to do with his political kingdom. And in fact, they hated God because he had a different kind of kingdom than they were interested in. They thought the kingdom was coming immediately, a political kingdom. And then in what I would call a not-so-triumphal entry in view of the fickleness of that city, the very fact that Jesus asked his disciples to to commandeer uh, a, a, a beast of burden from one of the citizens of, of, of the town there is not itself unusual. What is unusual was the kind of animal it was. A donkey, a, a humble animal. Uh, this was to be, of course, a humble king. And so again, some rejoice at Messiah and, and some are haters. And really, there are no two op- other options than that. And our question today is, how are you responding to this time of Jesus' visitation among us right now? As he visits us by his word, how are you responding? And how are you responding to others who are at this time saying no to the coming Prince of Peace? We're going to look at at three C's today, the compassion of Christ um, and the counterfeit peace that many, uh, many in our day have. And finally, the, the, the sad consequences. Compassion, compassion, counterfeit, and consequences. We are drawn by Jesus' compassion. He is weeping over lost people. And this, some of the Puritans would say, is, is the natural work of, that, that compassion is Jesus' natural work. It is what most easily comes out of Him. Our gentle and lowly Savior with a tender heart, approaches the city uh, of God's delight, knowing the horrible judgment that would soon come upon it in just 40 years. He has a deep longing and compassion for them that many would come uh, to uh, trust in Him as the Lord. Uh, B.B. Warfield puts it this way, yet they had an obstinate unbelief that convulsed him with uncontrollable grief. Jesus in turmoil here. The compassionate Son of God. But listen to this juxtaposition. The compassionate Son of God foreseeing at the same time the coming judgment of God. And you might well ask, well, which is it? Is he compassionate or does he judge? His natural work is that of compassion. This is language that comes out of the Puritans. Thomas Goodwin, for example, says that Christ's natural disposition is to have compassion. Mercy and compassion are in his heart 
And at the same time, he is reluctant to punish. Do you hear that? His natural work is compassion, which brings with it a reluctance to punish. And that would be called, that that punishment would be called um, by Isaiah himself, the strange and alien work of God. It is a strange and alien thing for God to bring judgment. It is a natural thing for God to bring compassion. Think of a parent um, who punishes a disobedient child. Kids, you may not get this, but your parents do not enjoy what they're doing. They do not punish you with their whole heart. They punish you because they must. Justice calls for it. But they do it reluctantly. Punishing is your parents' strange and alien work. Listen, listen to Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah uh, chapter, uh, chapter 28. Uh, he is bringing, uh, he is speaking of the, of the punishment that would come uh, upon the Israelites and says, the Lord will rise up. He will be roused to do his deed, that is, the deed of judgment, the deed of punishment, strange is his deed. Not natural, but strange. And to work his work, alien is his work. What's he saying here? Well, go back to the words of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah would say, speaking from the, of the Lord, I will rejoice I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and my soul. I am so devoted to doing them good. My heart is so full of compassion. It spills over. It cannot be contained. It is my natural impulse and my deep desire. And as, and as uh, Lamentation says, uh, God afflicts the children of men, afflicts the children of men, but not willingly. And literally it says there, but not uh, by his heart or not with his whole heart. He punishes, but reluctantly. He afflicts, but not with his whole heart. What he does with his whole heart is he pours out compassion for his people. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way, God has no pleasure in destruction of people. Judgment is his strange work. He would much rather that they turn to him in peace. Mercy is natural to God. Punishment is unnatural. It is alien. It is strange. Mercy shows up in compassion. That's his natural heart as he weeps for those who reject peace. Jesus is moved by compassion as he sees these lost people visualizes them as they face destruction. He can only weep. He can only weep. He takes no pleasure in judgment. The Jews, on their, for their part, they had a counterfeit peace. Uh, they sought after peace according to their own understanding, rejecting the real peace uh, of the Lord. Would you, uh, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They're seeking peace, but not the peace that God provides. The Jews, as the parable of the Minas indicated, wanted a worldly peace. 
Uh, They wanted their national independence. They wanted to have a respectable place before the nations around them. They had their own brand of what we might call Jewish exceptionalism. Do you understand that phrase? We're different. We're, we're, we're better. Um, we're, we have more uh, privilege and, and um, abilities and capabilities uh, than anyone else in the world. That was the Jewish exceptionalism. And the peace they wanted, they would be satisfied with the peace that is described in places in the Old Testament. Each family under its own vine and fig tree. That's all I want but without the peace of God. And they wrongly assumed that they had it. And yet they had no need for, and in fact, uh, no understanding of the peace that Jesus Christ promises, as in the words of, of Zechariah, a fountain open to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's the peace that they were passing up. Listen, a fountain, a generous flow, a washing, a cleansing, powerful, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Only the fountain of Jesus' blood cleanses the soul and rinses our heart clean. Amen. Peace with God and peace of conscience. There's no nothing better than that at all. Now, we have our own form of counterfeit peace in our, in our country today. We've got to look at that. And I'm just going to look at one sliver of it. But it's a a distressing sliver. That is, in our nation, we have rejected, many, many in our nation, and we could say the new left, the cultural elite, uh, reject what we will call transcendent truth. Transcendent. Do, Do you know what that means? Transcendent means it is above us. It is overarching us. It is, it is, it is the large, uh, metaphysical reality that God exists and God is a God of order. He has created a world that is beautiful in, 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 and after His image. And there is a morality that flows from that. And all of that is part of this transcendent truth, transcendent reality over our nation. We're formed by God. But we are a people. Many of us in our culture, our society today, are a people committed to, hear me here, committed to decreation. Decreation. That is creating a world that is without God, and there is no, no deity behind creation. There is no God-given order. There is no natural order of male and female. True peace, true peace, true authenticity, true integrity. It is said today with a straight face. It is said today that that is through the discovery of our authentic selves. Our authentic selves. This is the self-creation part. Decreate the world and self-create. There is no distinction between male and female. You, uh, what you feel, you are. Simplest terms, what you feel, you are. I saw some uh, YouTube clips a couple of weeks ago, someone doing um, an interview on a college campus, and the question was simply this, is there a difference between male and female? Is there a difference between male and female? What struck me was that almost, almost all of these kids used the same language as if they were quoting a catechism. Well, it's what you decide that really makes who you are. 
the, the, the interviewer said at one point, standing before a couple of girls, am, am I a man? Well, it does look that way. And you might be, but I don't know for sure. This is the wisdom of this day. And do you think that this kind of thinking can bring peace? It is distressing that children, children will be listened to in the, in the wandering minds and mouths of a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old, and their parents, their, some parents, if they, if they have some gender dysphoria, will begin a process of, of, of introducing hormones into their lives and, and mutilating their genitalia. It's a tragedy on so many levels, but perhaps the most basic one is this. The majority of these kids, by the time they reach their late teens, will have figured it out. And they will be living with permanently disfigured bodies. And we call this peace. And we call this progress. Professing to be wise, we have become a nation of fools. And this causes great sadness and deep angst in many of us. This is not a laughing matter. This is not something to mock. It is something to feel, it is something to grieve deeply about. Because you see, their choice will be hardened. Uh, they, are, are, they have hardened themselves against God, have closed their eyes to the truth. They have loved God, darkness more than they have loved God, and God gave them over to it. Do you hear this? God is hardening the hearts of those who have already come to him with a hardened heart. God gave them what they wanted so they get the judgment they choose. They, can't, they don't see, and they can't see because they won't see. And they get the judgment they choose. And there are consequences. Verses 30, uh, 43 and 44 describe the coming consequences. Josephus wrote of the horror of the Roman invasion in AD 70. Um, of, and, 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 the, and yet, even with this coming judgment, uh, the heart of Jesus longs for the people. The city would fall. Of course, that's part of God's plan to propel the gospel outside of its Jewish orbit to be opened up to the world. But nonetheless, the city will fall and great will be the fall of it. Listen to these words from Josephus. Uh, uh, he writes, um, this, this was a first century Jewish historian uh, writing in real time. While the city was burning, neither pity uh, for age or respect for rank was shown. Children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city to be raised. That doesn't mean lifted up. Raised, R-A-Z-E, it means, it means leveled. It means brought down. The emperor ordered the entire city to be raised to the ground. Only part of a wall was left standing. The rest uh, was so completely raised to the ground to leave future visitors no reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. The days will come upon you, Jesus says, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time 
of your visitation. Now, this is a one-time, a one-time and local event, but it is an early tremor of what will come across the world. And that is the great, that is the great horror, and you might say the greater horror of God's, of God's strange work, alien work, strange work it is, but it is coming for those who reject the peace offer. And keep a picture of Jerusalem in your mind. But but it's not just the loss of this life. It is eternal punishment that is in view. And these are real people. And they have real names and social security numbers. And they're saving for their pension. And they're, and they're, they're looking to get to that point of retirement with little thought that retirement is just one more chapter. It's not, it's not the end of things. These are people that you know. These are people perhaps even in your family. You know them. Think of the story of, of Father Abraham who was received uh, uh, poor Lazarus into, into heaven. Lazarus had been... Um, what, what's the word? The rich man where, where he lived had, had not cared well for him. I'll just put it that way. He neglected him. And so when this rich man, when the rich man died, he was, uh, he was taken uh, into, into this place of, of, of torment. And it is a place, Luke, Luke says, two things about it I want to mention right now. One is it's a place of anguish, and the second is a place, it's a great chasm between where Lazarus was and where this, this uh, formerly rich man was. It is a place of anguish. The words of our confession say, at death we are cast into, one is cast into hell where they remain, in torments and utter darkness reserved, reserved, being held for the final judgment. That's what happens at death to those who do not have the peace of Jesus. They, they are subjected to a place of anguish, cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness. And there is a great chasm. There is no escape. There is no exit to... Uh, to have a play on Jean-Paul Sartre. There is no exit. You can't get out of there. Um, and there is no crossing over from one to the other. Still, our sovereign Lord has chosen to pass over some, but even those he punishes only with reluctance, not with his whole heart. And his desire is now, Jesus' desire is now, one of compassion for those that you and I know, perhaps ourselves in this same room, who may not yet aligned ourselves with Jesus, taken his peace. He says, with compassion, come to me. So the great question for one of, one of the great questions for us is uh, on this day of Christ, uh, Jesus' visitation, now in peace, later, later in war, but now in peace, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with, him, with this Christ? He offers you his natural work of compassion. In fact, he pleads with you to take it. Do you understand what I'm saying? He pleads with you today to accept his compassion. And he weeps if you reject it. He offers, in the words of of Acts chapter 3, he offers refreshment to the very people who mocked him and who and who uh, and who killed him to those very people he offers refreshment through the lips of Peter in Acts chapter 3 
times of refreshment and repentance have come to you. My hands are still open. My heart is still compassionate. As Peter says uh, in, in his second letter, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's heart. Would, would that you, even you, know what makes for peace? That's Jesus' heart. Come uh, to God who is uh, full of mercy for sinners. Children, if you've heard this request, this call, multiple times from this pulpit, don't let today go by without responding yes to it. I, I want to know the compassionate heart of Jesus. Turn away from my sins. Receive that, that fountain of, of forgiveness and cleansing. I want that. I want that. I don't want the harsh judgment. I don't want that judgment. I want to live for the glory of God. Well, the second great question that this passage raises for every single one of us in this room, it raises this question. How do you feel? And I choose my words carefully. How do you feel about foolish people? How do you feel about them? The fact that they, if they go on, stay on their course, will end up in hell without Jesus. How do you feel about them? Well, they're getting what they deserve. Or, you may feel nothing at all. As if hell didn't exist. Or, perhaps worse yet, if you don't care that it exists. You find yourself safe, and that's good enough. Or do you weep as you visualize their destruction? I was driving around this week uh, preparing for um, a visit with a friend of mine who works at a business um, here. here uh, well, I was going to say here in town. That doesn't quite work in Pole Tavern, does it? Um, but close by. Um, he, he works nearby, and... Um, and, and, and as I was driving towards him, I was thinking about this text. And I was thinking about my Savior weeping, <coughs> weeping over those who um, um, were, were rejecting his invitation. And that humbled my heart, but it also lifted it up. I really want to see this guy. And I really want to, I really want to put this in his hands. And I want to invite him to church next week. What you find... What you find is that the more someone is like Jesus, the more he'll have this attitude. I mean, seriously, I am, hum- I am so humbled by the Apostle Paul, who, who was um, maybe the most like Jesus as anybody could, anybody could be. Do you remember what he did when he thought about his, the Israelites? Do you remember what he did? Romans 9 tells us what he did. He what? He wept for them. And he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish, I could wish that I myself were cursed for them. In some strange way, he's saying, I would give up my place in heaven and I would endure the punishment of hell if, if my countrymen 
would, would grasp this Jesus and be saved? Who, who thinks like that? As I said, the most Christ-like person in the world, perhaps, outside of Jesus himself, who did endure hell for the lost. So we pray. We pray for a heart of compassion. We pray for Paul's heart because he had Jesus' heart. And we pray that for ourselves. And that we would take a step somewhere along the line. We would take a step to introduce Jesus to people around us. Whether it's hospitality, whether it's an invitation to church, whether it's simply praying for the opportunity. Lord, give me a heart to feel and eyes to see and a tongue to speak for your glory and not my own. Let us pray. Father, we, um, we, are, we are all humbled before your word today. Um, it, is, um, it, is, it is powerful and straight to our hearts. And we love Jesus for it. We love Jesus who is compassionate for the, for the lost and certainly for us. And so we pray, God, that you would be stirring in us even now through this, whole, this uh, Holy Supper, uh, that we would come, uh, Lord, to um, deeper fellowship with this Savior. If there's anyone here today who, who has not come to a place of, of taking uh, the words of this Savior and saying, I want him in my heart, I want him to be my Lord, I want him to be my sin bearer, Holy Spirit, we pray for you to work that this day. Amen.